I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. What you're about to hear, folks, are national celebrities, celebrated authors, renowned health experts, and regular people like you and me who have done something remarkable with their lives. And after listening to them, you will believe that you can do it, too. No matter how young or how old you are, that's what Growing Bolder is all about. We're about to talk to the fastest banjo player in the world, and we'll also learn the secrets behind tracing your family history. We're going to meet one of the top psychiatrists in the country who has advice on how to use your mind to actually change your brain to stop bad habits. And we'll talk with nutrition expert Dr. Susan Mitchell and yoga with the oldest instructor in the world. This is Growing Bolder. Over the years that Growing Bolder Radio has been on the air, we've learned a lot about you, our listeners, mostly that you like to be challenged, to learn about things that blow your mind. There's an amazing documentary out, and the word amazing is not really strong enough, but it's called Alive Inside. And when the producers put a clip from it up on YouTube, man, it had such a profound effect on the people who saw it. This thing, Mark, it went from nothing to over like 6 million views, you know, like that. Yeah, it really is stunning. Alive Inside profiles seven elderly people that are suffering from dementia and what happens to them when they're given iPods loaded with their favorite songs from years ago. The results are stunning. It's a very simple idea, but one that everybody seemed to miss until our next guest decided to take it upon himself to make it happen. Let's find out more from the man behind Music and Memory, the iPod Project, Mr. Dan Cohen. Hi, Dan. How you doing? Hi, Mark. Hi, Bill. How are you? Matt, we're just really impressed with what you've done. Uh, so take us back to, to its genesis. 2006, you're a social worker, a person who cares greatly about those in your care, and it occurs to you to reach out to all of the long-term care facilities out there that used iPods. How many did you find? I found none. <laughs> Nobody was doing it. Were you surprised by that, Dan? Uh, yes, I was. Um, since music is such a, an integral part of recreation or, you know, it's an important activity in nursing homes, um, they have live music, they have groups, they have music playing over the PA system, um, but, but no iPods. Now, so how did that ha- happen? I, I mean, what's the difference between people coming in and, you know, playing the piano and having sing-alongs and the iPod? What makes that so different? Well, what makes it different is uh, availability. So if someone comes in and plays live music, you have a musician from the community. Sometimes that musician comes in once a week, and then they go home. And it's fantastic to have the musician uh, playing live music. It really gets people engaged, uh, great interaction. Uh, But the secret guilt of what some musicians have told me is that uh, they feel bad when they leave, that the um, residents are not going to have that same level of um, uh, you know, uh, engagement um, when they leave without their music. Um, and so the iPods allow for any time, you know, the day is long, the, the weeks are long. Um, staff um, is there nine to five, I call them the quality of life staff, the people that, that work really hard uh, based on the resource, resources that the community and reimbursement rates allow in uh, long-term care in, in, in this country. Uh, they do what they can and they're great people, uh, but, but there's only, only so much they can do. As, so as a result, they focus on group activities as opposed to individual activities. So if you or I were in a nursing home, uh, would you want to listen to the music that is chosen for you, even if it's from your era? Or would you want to pick out the specific songs that you really love? Uh, not even a question. So, so the documentary, Alive Inside, documents what happens when you actually put these earphones with these iPods uh, in, into these people's ears. And the video that Bill mentioned in the lead-in, the one that was on YouTube, and, and certainly we linked to it from our site, as did many others, uh, there's a guy there who doesn't even recognize his daughter. He literally sits there and mumbles. But what happens to him, the way that he comes back to life before our very eyes is stunning. How does that happen? What's the mechanism at work there, Dan? Well, I think we, we all make an assumption, a short-term memory, that they've, uh, they're no, no longer the, the person that they were. 
and, and in fact, their emotional system is very much intact. And it just so happens that music when, that we listened to when we were young, 10, 15 years old, um, is more heavily imprinted on our neural networks. Uh, so that even though parts of the brain may be ravaged by Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, um, that music memory uh, it, it remains. Um, and uh, so you can access it by playing music that's familiar from someone's youth. Somebody will just go from, yes, not recognizing their relatives, maybe haven't spoken in six months, but they'll wake up, start singing the words to the song to almost perfect rhythm, and their whole mood, their whole aura changes. And then what happens around them, because very often these individuals are, are spending their time in an area of a nursing home with other people with dementia, the others look and they're just enjoying the, the um, joy that, that, their, that their roommate is, that the, is having uh, and experiencing. So it's, uh, it's quite a remarkable sight, um, and, and it is very powerful. Dan, can you talk a little bit about how successful this therapy is? Because here's what I'm thinking. You know, in those diet supplement ads you see on TV all the time, you see that, well, I lost 500 pounds, but the small print says results may vary. Does this happen to most of the people that you've tried it with, or is the YouTube guy just one of those exceptions? Um, he's not terribly exceptional in that sense. Uh, but everybody reacts differently, just like we all react differently to a song that's played. Um, and s- some people might react um, as soon as that music gets going and they hear it. Others might sit for hours listening quietly, enjoying the music. And, you know, if they didn't like it, they would take it off. They'd knock the headphones off their head. Um, so so the, the reaction does range. Um, and sometimes they learn, even with headphones, uh, we don't use earbuds, of course. Uh, with headphones, someone might, with dementia, might knock that headphone right off their head uh, because they don't know what it is. It's uncomfortable. Uh, but then if you sort of, uh, you can start off playing um, music that they know from a little speaker, uh, but then play, hold the headphones up to, up to the ear. Uh, and then when they start to uh, associate, they learn uh, that the headphones are associated with the music. It's, it's you know, there's uh, comfort with it. And then they'll sit with the headphones for, you know, a half hour, hour, hour and a half and really enjoy it. Um, the other big benefit and the, a big issue with um, and challenge to caregivers uh, for those with Alzheimer's is um, agitation um, and uh, what they call sundowning, where people just get uh, anxious and agitated, and, and it's difficult sometimes because then different behaviors emanate from that that are difficult to handle. But there's a great deal of research around which uh, documents what many people, music therapists, already know, that um, that agitation, anxiety, and sundowning is drastically reduced, making life much better for both the individual who's got the Alzheimer's and their caregiver, whether it's at home or in an assisted living facility or in a nursing home. Uh, It's a big win and, and a great opportunity for families and caregivers. We're talking with Dan Cohen, folks, who is uh, the man behind a documentary called Alive Inside, which documents just the amazing transformation uh, of dementia patients when uh, something as simple as putting earphones from an iPod that contained the music of their youth uh, in there. I mean, it's stunningly simple and amazingly powerful. And, Dan, if all it did was improve the quality of their life in that moment, it would be totally worthwhile. Uh, but but as we see in the documentary, these people that were totally non-communicative, all of a sudden, uh, after they've been listening to the music, are now talking to the people around them and, and become more socially engaged. So it seems to have more than, than, than just the restoration of that, that deep long-term memory. Well, the unexpected win, uh, you know, when I started this, I really was no expert on music and, and, and no, not very familiar with Alzheimer's, except what people generally are. Uh, but the, the music not only uh, resonates with individuals, but uh, it helps make them more social. When I started this, people were sort of a little annoyed. Dan, you can't do this. You're going to isolate people more with this. You're going to put headphones on people that are already very isolated. So after I did this for about uh, 18 months, and I uh, found some uh, a family foundation in New York, Shelley and Donald Rubin Foundation, uh, to help get 200 iPods for 200 people, um, about half of them with dementia, half without. And uh, we found that um, um, there were no reports from the 33 professional staff that were letting us know what was going on across four facilities. There were no reports of isolation, but a flood of stories of increased socialization. Mm-hmm. People wanted to say, oh, you've got to hear this music, or this reminds me, my wife, we got married, went to the beach, whatever, uh, in our youth, um, and, or uh, talking to the non-professional uh, 
uh, employee uh, sweeping the floors. Oh, you're about my age. Remember the Andrews sisters, or you know, or, or help me with the volume control on my iPod, perhaps. Um, so all sorts of uh, interaction would happen. Of course, in a nursing home, half the people in nursing homes in the U.S. have no visitors, uh, which is which is which is a shocking and sad fact. Um, and so to make ways for people, to make it easier for families to visit or for friends or for students or volunteers, um, music really helps break the ice through a greater interaction, which is, which is a real big deal. Dan, are, are you surprised by the reaction? I mean, not just the, the YouTube video with over 6 million views, but the documentary. I mean, you created a buzz from this thing, and, and the national spotlight now is shining on, on you guys. What, what do you hope to do with the interest now that you have it? Where, where are you going to take this? Um, hope, well, the, the, one of the, uh, the big reaction was I had 700 people around the country and around the world contact me saying they want to do this. They want to do this at home with their loved one. They want to do this in their local nursing home where their loved one lives. Uh, they want to help make this a, um, a standard of care in their community or their state um, or their country. Or they wanted to run an iPod donation drive because nursing homes don't have extra cash. I mean, they're being cut back every year in terms of the money coming in, as I mentioned before. But they have the same number of people to serve with uh, less and less staff. So um, to buy, go out and buy iPods when at the same time they're laying off people, um, it's, it's really difficult to do. So we um, train high schools and colleges uh, to run their own iPod donation drives. Um, so that overcomes a big hurdle in, in, in terms of implementation. So we're looking to make this a standard of care that people just know about this. They try it. In a nursing home, when someone is anxious, and it doesn't have to be you know, with uh, Alzheimer's. It could be someone who is just depressed. Or you know, a lot of people that have stroke or macular degeneration is a very high level of depression. Forty percent of the people who have either one, either one of those uh, tend to be depressed. Uh, but if you give them music, that will really change their mood very often. Um, and so we're looking for everybody to uh, think first about the music before they think about, oh, let's give them a uh, medication to help them sleep or a medication to reduce their anxiety or, or a medication to improve their behavior. Because uh, oh. the music might do the trick and there's no adverse effect. Boy, a great point. Uh, his name is Dan Cohen. The documentary is Alive Inside. And, folks, if you're involved in elder care, if you're taking care of your parents, you need only watch the trailer to this documentary to become a believer in the power of an iPod with music. Uh, check it out. You will not be disappointed that you did. Thanks, Dan. Coming up, a guy who found success when his art went boom. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Located in West Orange County, Orlando Health's Health Central Hospital is a full-service hospital with an accredited chest pain center and heart failure program, as well as top-rated neurospine and orthopedic programs. Learn more at orlandohealth.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com. Oh, I love that jangly guitar. I'm Bill Schaefer alongside of Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. How many of you out there wish you could find another way to make a living? You know, something not so boring and something you'd actually look forward to. You know, a dream that you might have had that you gave up on years ago. Well, you know what? You may want to sit down and give it some serious thought because more people than ever are doing exactly that. They're reinventing themselves. And you know what? They're doing it at all ages. Isn't that a great thing? Uh, some people, Bill, just don't have a choice for them necessity is the mother of reinvention. They've lost their jobs. They need a better income, whatever. But for many people, there just comes a time in life when you, you just need to reexamine things to make certain what you're doing is sustaining and fulfilling to you. Reinvention can be just the thing to put that spark back in your life. But perhaps no one has taken reinvention to heart more creatively than Glenn Rogers. Let's pay him a quick visit. Welcome to Boomer. Imagine walking into a world where yesteryear surrounds you in the form of one-of-a-kind, affordable works of art. Do 30 even, even for you. Oh, that's even better. Yeah. Oh, you're kicking my butt. Glenn Rogers calls it boom art. 
And don't let the small shop fool you. His virtual store on eBay has allowed him to connect with an impressive list of customers. We actually do work for people like Robert Plant, Shaquille O'Neal, Carrot Top, Jeff Foxworthy, Steven Tyler, Tom Peterson, The Cheap Trick, Trey Schneider, B-52's, Marine McGovern, Congresswoman Pat Schroeder, Jay Leno, Ann Margaret, Rob Thomas, Bill Schaefer. Rogers never started out to be the boom art guy. He was too busy piling up an amazing list of life experiences, some that we've seen along the way. When I was 21, I was the youngest designer hired by Congolium Home Furnishings out of Kearney, New Jersey. I designed the floor for the movie The Wiz, the Yellowstone Road that they ease on down. I used to do the Mr. Whipple storyboards for Charmin, Please Don't Squeeze a Charmin. Wrote for Saturday Night Live, the Loud Family Skits, and for Disney's Aladdin, I did a textile pattern, like pajamas and stuff. This is my money face up here without the beard. I studied acting in New York with Lee Strasberg and Anthony Menino. I did off-Broadway plays, movies, commercials, print work for magazines and billboards, and then that's my face on my belt buckle with Ringham Brothers. For two years, I was a clown, juggler, comedy writing, and props. And so basically, we've had this shop now for 13 years, so it's probably the longest I've ever had any one job. So this is pretty much my identity now. But what does Boomart offer that those other careers didn't? a chance to be remembered for a very long time. You do it for money, but you don't do it for the money. You do it for R, L, and L, recognition, lifestyle, and legacy. And that's my whole thing. I want 100 years from now, somebody shows up on the Antique Road Show or something with a piece of boom art, and there's enough of all this documentation that they know is on the planet. And I figure legacy is probably really one of the most important things to me. He's a man who's as original as his artwork, with a lot of advice like this that he's anxious and willing to share. Hear everybody, listen to nobody, because at the end of the day, you really have to be just true to yourself. And no matter what you do as far as work or if you're retired or whatever, just did I get the most out of this day as possible? Because there's a lot of people that are wasting a lifetime. No, it's never too late. It's not too late until they close the box, dude. It's just... You can't control when you're born, and you can't control when it's time to check out. So you just got to take the time that you're given and make the most of it. Rogers believes it's important to strive for success, but never forget that success means different things to different people. Van Gogh never sold a painting while he was alive. Well, I sell something every day, and I have both ears, so I'm doing better than Vincent Van Gogh. So that's not, that's not too shabby. Bye. Bye-bye. There is a glass half full kind of guy. Glenn Rogers, fascinating. And folks, his art you have to see to believe what you can at Boom Art by Rogers. Still, there are lots of people out there who mistakenly believe that it's too late to invent or to reinvent themselves. And if you're one of those, well, Bill's got something that might change your mind. Get this, Mark. A friend asked a woman named Adela Choquet if she wanted to go to a yoga class. Adela thought about it and said no. She was in her 60s and said, what's the point in starting yoga? I mean, how far could she go with it? Well, we were pretty impressed at what we found 30 years later. Yoga isn't easy, but it can be one of the most rewarding things you can do for your body and your mind. But you've got to make sure you have a good instructor, somebody who knows how to safely stretch your limits, like Adela Choquet. She's one of the oldest yoga instructors in the country. Can you believe this woman is 91? I guess if you're one of her students, there are no excuses. She stood up and she said, I am too old for this. I said, what are you saying? What are you saying? Because I am 91. So don't talk to me about all. And at the age of 91, she practices yoga four hours a day, three times a week. I love it. We go for so many things in life, and when I am here, I am a different person. She says it's never too late to give yoga a try. And I must have been about 55, maybe. A friend of mine, I was having dinner with her, and she said, "Ah, I have to go. Where are you going? She said, my yoga class. I said, what is that? Well, come with me. This was in Miami. Come with me, she said. And, uh, well, I went with her. There I was, with my legs up to here. And I said, what am I doing here? After the three hours, I said, well, I think I like this. She liked it so much that it's been a major part of her life for almost 40 years. 40 healthy years. 
What are the secrets to living a long and good life? That you have to be active. Active. What? At 91, Adela Choquet is active, involved, and she's making a difference in a lot of people's lives. I am 91 years old. I am not getting older. I am growing bolder. That has a pretty nice ring to it, doesn't it? Proof, folks, that it really is never too late. You know what the leading cause of death in the U.S. is? It's not cancer. It's heart disease. And nothing puts you at risk more than high cholesterol. Here's quite a statistic from the Center for Disease Control. One out of every six adults has high cholesterol. That's 16% of the population that is at twice the risk for heart disease. So we've got to get it lowered. And that's why we brought in registered dietitian and expert in the field of nutrition. You've seen her on the Today Show, CNN, and the Food Network. Here's Dr. Susan Mitchell. Well, walnuts, pecans, pistachios, cashews, peanuts, doesn't matter. I like them all. Do you? Now you have a reason to go nuts. If your cholesterol is elevated or you're trying to keep a lid on it because high cholesterol runs in your family, perk up for this news about cholesterol-busting nuts. Here's a little Nut Nutrition 101. Nuts and seeds contain a low amount of less healthy or saturated fat and higher amounts of the good mono and polyunsaturated fats. Okay, any idea how much cholesterol is in nuts? Zero. How can that be? Cholesterol comes from animal sources, and since nuts are a plant source, no cholesterol. Nuts also contain protein, fiber, the antioxidants vitamin E and selenium, plus other naturally occurring nutrients. Most people tend to skip nuts and seeds because they think they're too high in fat and calories. True, the fat and calorie content are high, but the type of fat is heart healthy, and the nutrients are beneficial. The secret portion control. No popping open a can of nuts and scarfing down the entire contents while you watch TV. Then you're right. Nuts have way too many calories and too much fat. But eaten in reasonable portions, such as a small handful, which is about one up to three ounces per day for the cholesterol-lowering effects, they can be beneficial to your health. So Susan, are you talking about all nuts or, or just certain ones? Well, a study in the Archives of Internal Medicine pooled results from 25 trials in seven countries. The study looked at almost 600 men and women with either normal or high cholesterol, but they were not taking cholesterol drugs like the statins. And researchers from Loma Linda University found that the participants consuming nuts daily, almost 2.4 ounces, or in our real-world amounts, that would be almost two-thirds of a cup of walnut halves, they saw an average 5% drop in total cholesterol and over a 7% decline in the lousy or LDL cholesterol. Now, don't miss this, the answer to your question. Those with high, uh, high triglycerides saw the levels plummet by an average of 10%. And the good news, all different types of nuts all had similar effects. That is registered dietitian and nutrition expert, Dr. Susan Mitchell. Coming up, you wouldn't think of running a race without training your body. Why not train your brain so you succeed? Find out how next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being. Coming soon in Winter Park. Wellness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location. Offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Hi, Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer on Growing Boulder Radio. And you know, folks, your brain is what helps you change your mind. But did you know that your mind can actually change your brain? You're thinking, what does that mean? 
I'm thinking I have no freaking idea. <laughs> but it is fascinating. Remember the last time you were nervous about something? What did you do? You tried to ignore it, right? Well, our next guest says that is a big mistake. She says emotions like anxiety are really not what they seem to be. Not what they seem to be. Well, you've seen her on the Today Show and on A&E series Obsessed. You've heard her a number of times on NPR. You've read her in Cosmo, Forbes, New York Times, Psychology Today. In other words, folks, she is everywhere And she's just written an eye-opening book with Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz called You Are Not Your Brain, which is all about a four-step solution to changing bad habits, ending unhealthy thinking, and taking control of your life. Sound like something you could use a little help doing? Let's say hi to one of the most interesting psychiatrists in the nation, Dr. Rebecca Gladding. Hi, doctor. How are you? Good. How are you? First of all, if it's true that we are not our brains, then what are we? Well, it's a great question, and and really what we're trying to get at, getting people to understand, is that we're more than the collection of thoughts, urges, and impulses that are bubbling up from our brains. Um, And so what do we mean? The the brain is the passive side of experience. It's what's collecting, you know, sensory information, conversations, all all of these kinds of things. But it, it... it uses it in a very passive, automatic, rote kind of way. It, it's acting in the survival of the fittest way. In, and what I mean by that is it's going to do whatever it can to make you feel good right now, right? <clears throat> Whereas the mind, what we're, how we're defining it, is what's helping you focus your attention and what's helping you align your true goals and values in life with your actions. And so the brain just kind of collects all this information and presents it, and, and in our kind of construct, the mind is what helps you truly decide, is it in my best interest to just, you know, give into this craving right now, or would it be better for me in the long run because I'm trying to lower my cholesterol, I'm trying to lose weight, I'm, you know, trying to have a better relationship with my friend or whatever. Is it in my best interest to wait, to not act on that impulse and instead do something better, thereby rewiring my brain in the process? And, and so that's basically what we're, we're trying to get at. So, so it sounds like one is physiological, the brain, and the other is, is psychological, if you will. And, and the way I hear mm-hmm. you describe it, the brain is the slave to the mind, or should be. It, it should be. It, it isn't. And that's why we're having problems. We are a slave to our brains. Um, but, but ideally, the, the brain should be executing the uh, will of the mind. So yeah, that, that you've got it. All right. You know, very interesting to read through this book, Mark, because she talks a lot about uh, deceptive messages that, that our brain is constantly dealing with. Doc, tell us about wh- what do you mean by are, are we trying to fool ourselves all the time? What are these deceptive messages? So what, basically, we have all of these different deceptive brain messages, and it's, it's the idea that I was talking about before, that there are these thoughts, these urges, these impulses that are just bubbling up from the brain. Um, where they come from is a little more challenging to describe, but, but usually it's rooted in our childhood and the way people treated us, if someone bullied us, um, if we had people who you know, didn't treat us well or, or whatever, wherever our insecurities in life come from, um, those are deceptive brain messages. Having self-doubt, um, any of those kinds of things, constantly overanalyzing things, you know, using drugs or alcohol to make you feel better, any of those kinds of things can be deceptive brain messages. They're the negative kind of scripts, the negative things we say about ourselves. Um, And so that's what they are, and that's what we're trying to help people start to identify, because once you can see them, then you can start doing something about them. You can debunk them. You can dismiss them. But until you do, you're just going to keep running with those same scripts and and keep acting in, in the same ways that aren't beneficial to you. Amen. I think we've all learned, Doc, that, that, that our brain can be a savage beast that is very difficult to control. Bill mentioned in the, in the introduction that uh, your book really has four steps, and we certainly don't want to go into a whole lot of depth on any one of these, but can, can you touch, uh, uh, have a touch point or two on each of these? I mean, one of the first ones is to relabel certain sensations. Tell us about that. Right. So say every time you get stressed, you eat chocolate, and the chocolate makes you feel better. So step one, relabel, is you identify the deceptive brain message and call it what it is. You say, oh, I feel stressed. I'm having a craving for chocolate. That's all step one is. It's, it's getting you to increase your awareness because you can't change something unless you can see it. So that's step one. Step two is reframe. That's where you're changing your 
perception of how important that brain message is. You say, you know what, this is not me. This is my brain. It thinks that every time I'm stressed, I need to eat chocolate, and that's going to fix everything. But you know what, I keep gaining weight because I'm stressed out all the time. It would be much better if I did something like step three, refocus, where I go for a walk or I call my friend or I go to the gym. Um, And so step three, refocus, is really about allowing those uncomfortable sensations or urges or thoughts to be there, but to not give in to them, instead to do something healthy and productive for yourself. And then step four, revalue, is really about changing um, or really about seeing that these are simply feelings and that these feelings, these urges, they'll, they'll change over time. And the really important part is that they do not have to define you and you do not have to give in to them. And, and so that's basically what the, the four steps are. And it all seems to lead to, to this other point that you make in the book, which is really interesting. It's, called, it's about attaining our true self. And, you know, I thought about mm-hmm. this for a while. What really, how do we know what our true self is? Well, that's the thing. When you have a bunch of deceptive brain messages, you might not know what your true self is. And you have to sit down. And in the book, we help people try to think this through. But, you know, what are your goals? Forget about what other people want from you. Forget about what the societal norms are. When you look it back at the end of your life, what is it that you would have wanted to do? How would you have wanted to live your life? Those are the things that are important to you. And if you're able to start identifying those and aligning your actions with them, you're going to feel a lot freer and you're, you're going to feel like you have a much more fulfilled life. And, and so, you know, that... that to me, is what true self really is. Dr. Gladding, we love this conversation, and one of the reasons we do is that, and I'm sure you're going to uh, uh, confirm this, you know, you hear more and more that, that, that the brain is very plastic. I mean, a lot of people want to have an excuse that, well, I'm 50, I'm 60, I'm 70, it's too late to change anything about my life, especially my brain, but aren't we learning uh-huh. that it is never too late? It isn't. I mean, because, again, it's all about your focus of attention. You're, you're talking about neuroplasticity, and in, which is literally meaning the brain is changing. Um, and we talk about a, a concept called self-directed neuroplasticity, which is that if you focus your attention, you can change your brain. So, yeah, I mean, it may take longer to change something if, if you've had a habit for 50 years or it's really tied into an emotion. But that doesn't mean you can't change it. It just means it might take a little more time and it might take a little more effort. Um, so absolutely, we can, we can keep changing things. I mean, I've seen people quit smoking in their 50s and 60s. So, yeah, it can happen. So we can control who we are and, and, and filter out the things that keep us from being who we are, I guess, is, is the, the main message here. And it's really, really interesting to think about because we can be, and it goes to the message that Mark was touching on there, we can be what we want to be. It is not too late to get out there and try the things that we've always held back from, whether it was from fear, whether it was from, from family obligation, or whether it was just life coming our way. But it is possible to change your outlook, to improve your health, and to re wire your entire perspective all you need sometimes is just a little bit of guidance and this book is a great place to find it you are not your brain thanks to dr rebecca gladding for some mind opening conversation coming up a visit with a woman who says that learning about your family history doesn't have to be like eating an elephant Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Masson Spine Institute, where world-renowned, minimally invasive techniques lead to fast recovery. The Masson Spine Institute, excellence in spinal surgery. More information at MassonSI.com. And by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Welcome back to Growing Boulder Radio. I'm Mark Middleton alongside Big Bad Billy Schaefer. And folks, how much do you really know about your family history? There are some incredible websites out there now that make researching your past easier than ever. Of course, the easiest way and the best way is to simply ask your parents and grandparents and relatives to tell their stories. But for some reason, tragically, it seems we just don't really become interested until it's too late. You know what? I I think it was like 
like a hundred years or so ago, it really wasn't that uncommon for families to keep a record of almost everything, special dates mm. and events. And our next guest believes it's time for all of us to start doing that again. But have you ever tried to write your family history? It's not easy unless there's someone there to teach you. And that's exactly what she does. So let's welcome the author of Eating an Elephant, <laughs> Write Your Life One Bite at a Time, and its author, Patricia Charpentier. Hey, Patricia, how are you? Hello, I'm doing great. Thank you. So what is the deal here? Are you saying that writing your family history is like eating an elephant? Yes, pretty much. So, yeah, we we don't do it because it's big. It seems overwhelming. And the whole eating an elephant concept is to figure out ways to take it, something that's really big, and break it down into small pieces. So here, that's where the elephant comes in. And it is interesting, and for lack of a better word, that it seems more and more of us now are suddenly interested in our past because, uh, you know, for for so long, for so many years, it really wasn't something that we inquired about or we tried to to document it. Uh, What has happened? What's caused this researching family history sensation? Well, I think people are realizing that we're, we're losing it. You know, we don't write letters anymore, even. Mm. So a lot of our family history was passed down in letters. And, you know, we, we document a lot of bad things that go on in the world. And I think people are just starting to see that we're losing our family and our personal histories. That's an awesome point, too. And the reason this is so interesting is because of your personal experience with it. When you were in your 20s, your mom really gave you a gift, which you didn't even look at for decades. That's right. She gave me a genealogy that went back on our family to like 1648, and I just threw it in a drawer, put it away, had absolutely no interest. I was much more interested in what was going on today in my life and uh, at that time, and you know, came across it 20 years later, and so much of the information was no longer available to me because of the people that had passed on. Uh, and maybe because of that, uh, you know, you were inspired to, to start your own company called Writing Your Life, in which you host workshops, classes, online classes, and more. Uh, and obviously, as it is with everything, the first step in getting started is always the most difficult. Uh, how do you know where to start? How do we get started? Well, the, the first thing that I try to get people to do is to break their life down into smaller pieces. So instead of looking at 50, 60, or more years, break it down into decades. And the other thing that I tell them to do is to make a list of everything that happened in that decade. You know, a list is a very non-threatening way to start to write. We make lists all the time, grocery lists, to-do lists, and it's a very good way to start to use a list as like a brainstorming device. You know, you, you really can't turn the TV on now without seeing a commercial for some of those genealogical sites that are on the Internet all over the place. Are those things worth the money? Can you really find valuable information there? Um, I certainly have, and I have for a lot of my clients as well. You you do need to know what you're doing, and there are a lot of genealogy organizations around that are more than willing to help. But you can find some pretty amazing things. And but that's why we say ask the questions now, talk to the people now, because instead of just factual information you can receive through the, these sites, then you get the personal story that goes along with it, like the meat that goes on the bones. And are some people afraid that the meat they find on the bones is going to embarrass them? I mean, there's nothing more discouraging than starting research with your friends, and watch them find out that they're related to King Edward, to Albert Einstein, and and the only thing you can find out is that your grandfather picked up droppings for the horse-drawn fire brigade. (laughs) Yeah, that's about right. That that happens more times than not. But, you know, I found something with my ancestors where one year they had two hogs and the next year they had five (laughs) hogs, and it thrilled me because I could tell they were prospering. And it is fun. It's the little details. You know, I, I was only half kidding when I said that. But it, it is th- those little personal intricate de- details are, are what make uh, not only the fabric of our lives, but the fabric of our ancestry. 
Right. I was very afraid to kind of start shaking the tree and see what would fall out. <laughs> but uh, there wasn't anything like that that came out, and it was uh, it was very interesting. And, you know, I tell people, that's great. If you got a murder or got some kind of scandal in your history, it makes for great stories. Yeah. So, so, so go is, for it. Is your, is your book enough? I mean, if we get your book, will we know what to do? Or do we need to find uh, somebody? Is there, you know, do we need to contact your business, you know, to, to really be able to research well? Well, the book will definitely tell you what to do with the information that you have, how to put it into story form so that someone who is not a genealogist will enjoy reading it. So that's a good place to start. Classes are a great thing because we need the accountability and the encouragement of other people doing the same thing to keep us going. And finally, is there a, is there a, a saying that you have or a phrase that you have to... Re- because really what you're doing, it's sort of genealogy, but it really is something different. Well, how do you describe what it is, that in es- the essence of what you do? Well, it's personal and family history. Um, a lot of people are doing it mostly on themselves, their, their personal histories, which we have access to. And the motto that I have for all of my classes and workshops and everything I do is the only way to do this wrong is to not do it at all. Oh. And that's what I believe, because... You know, anything that you get down on paper in any way, shape, or form is going to be appreciated. So it doesn't have to be perfect, doesn't have to be anything in particular. You just have to get something down and get started. Well, there are not a lot of things in life that we all have in common, but one thing we all have is a family history. So why not know what yours is, uh, for better or worse, and and enjoy the culmination of, of what it's all turned out to be? The book is called... Eating an Elephant. You won't forget that. Write Your Life One Bite at a Time. And you can learn more at writingyourlife.org. Thanks so much to Patricia Chapontier. Coming up, the fastest banjo player in the world is also one of the most unusual guests we've ever had. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Some picking. Hi, folks. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and that is the fastest banjo player in the world. You see, he's a guy who realized pretty early on in life that the banjo was going to be his thing. So instead of just trying to be another guy out there doing the same thing, he decided he was going to be the very best he could be and do everything within his power to elevate the status of the banjo as an instrument and to seek out as wide an audience as possible. Now let me tell you how good he did this, Mark. He is a Grammy-nominated artist. How many times do you suppose he was nominated for a Grammy? Once will do it. More. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Multiple. I'm talking five times. Wow. He was the first person in history to establish a world record for fastest banjo, and he's featured in a fascinating documentary on record breakers called Breaking and Entering. So let's say hi to a really cool guy, Todd Taylor. How are you, Todd? Hey, I am doing so great, and it's great to be on with you, Mark and Bill. Love the show. You guys have a great show. Well, you know, very informative. You are so nice to say that, Todd, but I got to be honest with you. We were a little hesitant to have you on the show because we were thinking if you talk the way you play, man, we'd be in a heap of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah, you know, when I set that world record, a lot of people know me from back in the early 80s. I was the first person to take banjo to rock and roll top 40 with Rick Dees with a remake of Freebird. And uh, I thought I'd throw that in. But when I set that world record, uh, for the Guinness World Record, through many, many years of, uh, you know, the hee-haw days. And I used to be with my twin brother, the Taylor twins, that we used to do, be on the uh, Grand Ole Opry and all that stuff when we were kids. 
put the get off that story and get into what I was <laughs> wanting to say is when I set that world record, uh, I did that to show all the handicapped people in the world uh, that do not ever give up. A lot of people know that back in the early 90s, uh, I was sick and uh, ended up going to John Schaffner in Atlanta, Georgia at uh, Emory University. He's a foremost father on the very rare and curable diseases, uh, muscle diseases. And I ended up, they found out I had uh, mitochondrial myopathy complex one deficiency disorder. It's a generic uh, muscle disease, which is very rare. I was the only person at that time in the United States with it. They had two people from China they had been studying. Well, make a long story short, they gave me six weeks to live. I was in a wheelchair, and I just uh, – with I've always been an up, bubbly kind of person, you know, and I've been, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. Uh, I don't push religion on anybody, but I do believe in, you know, there's a God. And that, having that, I was brought up in a great Christian home. But anyway, I kept my attitude up, and I couldn't believe it when they told me, you know, you're not, you may, you may live six weeks. But I was just, I kept my mind. I said, I got, I can't, I can't. I don't, I got too many things I want to do. I want to share more music with people. And the good Lord did help me. But anybody that's listening, this is my purpose in life today. I still love playing the music. I travel, I tour, I got new products out right now and all that. But my main purpose in life, I'm 45 now, my main purpose is to share with the world no matter what happens in your life or what the doctors ever tell you or anything, never give up, never give up. And that's the attitude. And that's what I set the Guinness World Record for, to show everybody and establish that record. Look, hey, I'm supposed to be dead, but look what I did. And it did inspire a lot of people. I didn't do it for Todd Taylor. I did it for everybody that's handicapped out there. That record was for all of them. And Todd, (laughs) Todd, guess what? What's that? Not only, and people don't know this, are you simply a blazing banjo novelty act? Let's listen to a bit of you slowing things down and taking a turn to the classics. That is beautiful. Bach cello suite number one in G major. Tell us about your gift and using the banjo for music other than bluegrass and country. Yeah, well, that's a great piece. I love that Bach piece. That's on my new CD called Indescribable that dropped uh, today. Actually, today's the worldwide release of this album. Uh, But early on in my early age, I played bluegrass. I was in Nashville when I was a kid. Earl Scruggs took me under his wing and showed me stuff and my twin brother picked up the guitar and we were called the Taylor Twins. We toured, we worked in Ever Amusement Park, Disney. Uh, we worked at Six Flags, Ever Amusement Park. Then we toured with Nashville on the road show with Jerry Clower, Jim Ed Brown after Wendy Hawkins had passed away. But during all those years, it was, uh, we did shows like Regis and Kathy Lee and uh, lots of network TV shows. I'd always been playing rock and roll, transcribing rock songs on the banjo. And Toy Caldwell, former Marshall Tucker band head guy, I used to sit with him when I was a kid, and he'd say, man, one day if you ever record that on the banjo, it's going to be big. But everybody told me I couldn't do it. And this is another thing I want all the listeners to hear. When somebody, you know, that you can't do it. And can't's never, not in my vocabulary. You can accomplish anything you want to accomplish in life. Uh, you know, you have to keep a positive attitude. Everybody said you can't take a band, play rock and roll with a banjo and all this stuff. Well, anyway, the, me and my twin brother were flying back from Regis and Kathy Lee back in the early, early 80s. And I told my brother, I said, I'm going on a solo career. I want to take the banjo to boundaries and places that it's never been. I want the people to see what the banjo can do. So I went in the studio and recorded that album, Something Different. Within five weeks, uh, I was with Rick Dees at the worldwide top 40 in the top 40, and then it just then it just went on from there. But but all styles of music, I love playing uh, everything on the banjo because it's such a great instrument you can do so much with. That Bach piece, though, 
to me, I love that. I love playing a lot of stuff like that because it's soothing and people people really dig it and they like it. You know what? So you know what else? You know what else they dig? And I got to get this in because you are so interesting and you got so much going on. I want people to know they can go to toddtaylorbanjoman.com to learn more about you. But you yeah. mentioned it earlier, and our producer Jason found it. He's got it. So we're going to close this segment out now by blowing people's minds and listening to a little of Todd Taylor meeting Leonard Skinner. Thanks so much, Todd. That's right. It is incredible how fast an hour can fly by when you're talking about ways to put the spark back in your life. This is a program, folks, where we prove that hope and inspiration are qualities that never fade because opportunities do surround us. No matter what your circumstances are, there are changes you can make to lead to a more rich, vibrant, and fulfilling life. Man, Bill, you said that well. Fired up. And the fun does not stop there because in the coming weeks, you will hear from more people who are not just talking the talk. They're actually living their lives in a way that defies conventional wisdom. People that are getting everything out of their lives. The good news is any of these guests could be you if you just get out there and start Growing Boulder. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing bolder, it's not about age, it's about attitude. Stay.